0: It's Tech Biter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blynn with an hour's worth of technology news in about twenty minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number three hundred twenty-two for the sixteenth of December, twenty twelve. If you're planning to buy a new computer, it may come with crapware but you can remove it. Pixels, long the stuff of which digital photos are made, may be on the way out. The FCC moves to modernize the RF spectrum. Another week, another bunch of changes from Adobe. And in short circuits, why do tech journalists think we're too stupid to use Windows 8? Redbox plans to challenge Netflix, and life on the bleeding edge can be interesting. If you're buying a new computer, watch out for crapware. This is a topic I've mentioned before, but it's important this time of year because so many people buy new computers around the end of the year. Computer manufacturers are always trying to boost their margins. Five or ten dollars a computer might not seem like much, but if you sell millions of computers, it adds up. Manufacturers install helpful applications on your computer, and they tell you that they're useful. What they don't explain as well is that the applications are trial versions, and the manufacturers receive payments if or when you buy the full version of an application. That doesn't seem so bad, but these free applications usually load when you start the computer, and if you don't buy them, they'll start nagging you, and nagging, and nagging. Hence the descriptive epithet, crapware. I can think of three ways to eliminate crapware or to avoid it altogether. Avoiding it is the best choice and it's one of the reasons that I don't buy computers from big box stores and big name manufacturers if I can avoid it. If you buy from a local assembler, you can avoid the entire mess because they don't install crapware. Avoiding a problem is even better than solving a problem. But if you buy a big-name computer, you still have some recourse. Some manufacturers still provide standard copies of the operating system on CD or DVD. If so, you can just boot to the optical drive and reinstall the operating system, leaving out all the crapware. At best, though, that option is in the maybe category, because most manufacturers provide either an OEM version of the operating system on a disk that they have modified to include their crapware. And most computers these days are sold without CDs or DVDs anyway. You'll probably be offered an option to create a recovery disc, but guess what it's going to contain? So the option behind door number three is to find a way to get rid of the crapware that's installed on your computer. Fortunately, a few applications exist that can help. The tools can, however, bring problems of their own, and if you're not careful, they might remove something you want to keep here are five to consider. PC decrapifier. It doesn't have to be installed, and it knows how to eliminate much of the junk that comes with new computers. You will have to buy it, but it isn't expensive, just five bucks. But if you're a PC technician and you plan to use it on a lot of computers, you really should spend 15 bucks extra and buy the professional license. Wind Patrol offers more control, and the cost of that control comes in reduced ease of use. A free version exists, but it comes with a limited feature set, so if you decide to give Wind Patrol a try, you'll really want the $30 version. Revo Uninstaller. It offers several levels of removal power and has both free and paid versions. The paid version is $30. If you've already removed some applications from the computer, Revo can examine the computer, find any leftover files and registry entries that are still there, and remove them too. I have seen instances though in which Revo becomes a bit too helpful and removes more than you might want it to. Slim Computer is more of a multi-purpose tool that also offers the ability to remove applications you don't want. I've talked about Slim Computer previously and find its cloud-based, crowd-sourced approach interesting. Slim Computer, which is free, can turn off applications that start automatically and reorder startup items to allow the computer to start more smoothly. And of course, there's the old standby, CCleaner, formerly called Crap Cleaner. It detects startup applications and allows you to control whether they start with the computer or not. It can examine both the computer and the registry to find things that are no longer used. Beware, though, that you need to examine the list of items CCleaner will remove, because I have encountered situations in which it caused certain Photoshop filters to stop working because it deleted what it thought were unnecessary registry entries. Both free and paid versions exist. So, if you are thinking about buying a new computer, and a lot of people are thinking about that this time of year, keep in mind that you do have options when it comes to crapware. Somehow this seems scary, or maybe at least sad. Pixel's days may be numbered. Whether you pronounce it Pixel or Pixel, These are the little dots that have been the basis for televisions, computer screens, and digital photography. Tiny square dots. Millions of them. They're what make up the picture from your camera, but a British firm says that the pixels' days are numbered. If you're familiar with computer graphics, you know that two methods exist by which you can create an image, pixels and vectors. Pixels are generally considered to provide more photorealistic images, which is one of the reasons that they're used for photography. Vectors, which are mathematical representations of what are called primitive shapes, lines, rectangles, and circles, are ideal for text or other similar shapes. In recent years, programs such as Adobe Illustrator, a vector program, have been made to deal with pixel images, and programs such as Adobe Photoshop, a pixel program, have been able to include vector components. It is possible to create a highly photorealistic vector image in Illustrator by tracing a pixel image. Sebastian Anthony, writing in Extreme Tech, describes the obvious problem with pixel-based images. As the resolution increases, the number of pixel increases dramatically. In addition to that, pixel-based images can't easily be enlarged. The result is jagged edges because enlarging pixel-based images just makes the original pixels larger. Vector images, on the other hand, can be made larger or smaller without suffering from the jaggies. The Extreme Tech article describes research by Philip Willis and John Patterson of the University of Bath in England. The two have created a video codec that replaces the pixel bitmaps with vectors. They call it Vectorized Streaming Video, or VSV for short. And Anthony says they're working with Route6 Technology, a company that specializes in transcoding and smoke and mirrors, a post-processing studio, to bring the codec to market. A demo system is expected within the first half of 2013. The process is apparently similar to Adobe Live Trace, and Anthony notes that the biggest issue with photorealistic vector graphics is the coloring of spaces between the geometric shapes, but apparently Willis and Patterson have solved this problem. It's hard to imagine a world in which the pixel has been completely replaced by vectors, but I can see a time when a hybrid approach would be most welcome. For example, it's possible now to enlarge a small pixel-based image by first tracing it to create a vector image, and then enlarging the vector image. The result is almost always better than any method used to enlarge a small pixel-based image any other way. If you'd like to read Anthony's Extreme Tech article, you'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and the researcher's explanation is on a PDF. There's also a link to it, but be forewarned, It's pretty darn technical. In the good old days, the Federal Communications Commission and the International Telecommunications Union chopped up the radio spectrum into various chunks. This piece was for use by international shortwave broadcasters, that one for TV stations, other chunks were allocated to amateur radio, police, or taxi cabs. That system worked well for decades. Then came computers and cellular telephones. On Wednesday, the FCC voted to approve a notice of proposed rulemaking that would allow wireless carriers, researchers, and business users to reserve the same bit of spectrum varied by region and time. The process is described in an article by David Talbot in the MIT Technology Review. Initially, the rule would apply to a small section in the 3.5 gigahertz band, now used exclusively by high-power military radar services. Talbot explains that this new concept is important because the growth and economic viability of wireless communications depends on intelligent control of the finite resource called spectrum. There's lots of spectrum out there, but only a few relatively small selections include frequencies that can be used for communications. Some wavelengths produce signals that can travel long distances, but are subject to atmospheric disturbances. Think, for example, AM radio. Others are less prone to weather-induced problems, but they don't go as far. Consider FM radio. Higher frequencies have more bandwidth, and they can pack more information into the signal. The article says that the FCC will probably recommend the biggest regulatory change in decades, one that allows a newly available chunk of wireless spectrum to be leased by different companies at different times and places, rather than being auctioned off to one high bidder. This actually makes so much sense that it's surprising nobody thought of it sooner. Mobile data traffic is growing so fast that it's increasingly difficult to manage, and reserving entire chunks of spectrum nationally for a single purpose just doesn't make sense. Frequencies that might be in high demand in metropolitan areas for mobile data would be unavailable to research scientists in remote Montana because of the old systems rules. Under the new plan, usage could be a lot more flexible. Talbot's article says the initial impact will be to open up a piece of spectrum in the 3.550 to 3.650 gigahertz band now used by radar systems. The rule could allow new technologies to be tested under conditions similar to how they would be used. Talbot notes that inventors now have to test their devices in sections of spectrum where no usage is licensed. That means that their new devices have to compete with baby monitors, garage door openers, and other similar devices. A company that wanted to test a new application could simply license a set of frequencies for a specific period in a specific location. You'll find a link to the complete MIT Technology Review article on the TechBinder Worldwide website. I was only half-joking when I suggested to one of my contacts at Edelman PR, the company that represents Adobe, that I'm going to have to start a new program just to report on updates from Adobe. This week, there were updates to Camera Raw, which means that Lightroom has also been updated, and Photoshop has some new features. If you wonder why Camera Raw updates require Lightroom updates, it's because both Photoshop and Lightroom use the capabilities provided by Camera Raw. The only difference is that Camera Raw is a plug-in for Photoshop, while it's an integral part of Lightroom. The updates provide support for 20 new cameras from Canon, Casio, Leica, Nikon, Olympus, Panasonic, Pentax, and Sony. As with all Adobe updates, the new software corrects several bugs that were reported via Adobe's community discussion site. Lightroom 4.3 and Camera Raw 7.3 are available on the Adobe website. Any owner of Lightroom 4 can download the update for free. Photoshop CS6 users can download the new Camera Raw plugin without charge. Both are available, of course, for Mac and Windows. You'll find additional information on the Adobe website, and I have a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Probably the more significant news from Adobe this week is an update to the Creative Cloud offering. When Adobe announced the Creative Cloud, one of the major advantages for members was described as having immediate access to application improvements. This week, the company provided access to more than a dozen new features for Photoshop. For example, on the Mac, Photoshop now supports Retina or High DPI displays. This feature was also made available to what Adobe calls Perpetual License customers as a free update. Smart Object support has been added for Blur Gallery and Liquify effects. That means that these effects can now be applied non-destructively. Photoshop makes it possible for users to export cascading style sheet code for text and objects, as well as to import color swatches. Both of these features will be welcome additions for users who design websites. The crop tool has been improved so that it provides better control and improved feedback. This is one of those deceptively small improvements. Doesn't look like much, but it can turn out to be an important time saver. Conditional actions allow users to specify rules under which a scripted action occurs. One example that Adobe suggests is designing different watermarks for vertical and horizontal images, and then having Photoshop select the right one to apply automatically based on the image's format. Creative Cloud Connection was also added this week. It's a desktop application that automatically syncs files to a Creative Cloud account whenever files are saved to a specific desktop folder. The promised Creative Cloud for Teams went live this week, too, providing the standard Creative Cloud features for a group of users and expanding online storage per user from 20 gigabytes to 100 gigabytes. Creative Cloud membership for individuals costs $50 per month, and users who upgrade from Creative Suite 3, 4, or 5 will pay $30 a month for the first year. Creative Cloud team memberships cost $70 a month. In short circuits, are we really too stupid to use Windows 8? I continue to encounter reports by computer experts who say that Windows 8 is a disaster. In general, these are the very same people who said that Windows 7 was a disaster. They are the same people who said Vista was a disaster. (laughs) All right, blind luck allowed them to get that one right. Before that, they said XP was a disaster, and Windows 2000 when it came along. Oh, it was a disaster. You may have noticed a pattern here. Whatever version of Windows was new and different was a disaster. By the logic put forth by these pundits, the only good operating system was DOS 1.0. So I was surprised to see the following headline on an email from CNET this week. New HP laptop offers some compelling reasons to consider Windows 8. The subhead said while the MacBook Air is a wonderful design, it's not perfect and HP offers some compelling reasons to consider a Windows 8 laptop. Brooke Crothers described the new Windows 8 offering from HP this way, The MacBook Air is a fine design, I use one every day, and the new 13-inch Retina MacBook Pro is an even better design. But the Apple way isn't the only way. Here are three features that the MacBook ain't got. Ain't got? Alright, so what does Crothers list? Built-in 4G. I quote: The EliteBook Revolve offers built-in 4G LTE or HSPA+. Wi-Fi only MacBooks are getting a bit stodgy. It's almost 2013. 4G should at least be optional on a MacBook. If G4 is an option for the iPad, why not for a tiny 2.4-pound MacBook Air? And if HP is including it in an ultrabook like the Revolve, you can bet there's a reason. Some of HP's business customers are demanding it. Cruthers also lists touchscreen, and again I quote, I've said this before and I'll say it again, touch is de rigueur for any mobile device now, and two years from now a portable device without a touchscreen will be an anachronism, like a keyboard without a mouse. Fact is, HP offered a touchscreen tablet long before the iPad Unfortunately, it was saddled with Windows XP, and HP and Microsoft could never see beyond the stylus as an input medium. Crothers also cites the docking station. I quote him one more time. I used the HP's docking stations for years, which the Revolve includes. They were a godsend. When you need to pick up and run, it's just a matter of popping the lappy out. No disconnecting and reconnecting cables. And a good docking station like those from HP offer every port under the sun. So plugging into the dock, you get a range of ports typically found only on desktops. So it's good to see that at least some of the pundits are willing to consider that computer users might actually be smart enough to use the new version of Windows, which really isn't all that much different from previous versions of Windows, and that the new version of Windows actually brings some useful features to the table. The clear leader in video streaming technology today is Netflix, just as the company is also the leader in DVD rentals. But Redbox, the operator of those red boxes that rent a limited range of DVDs from locations in and near stores, is about to launch a streaming service. Redbox says that it will offer an unlimited streaming video plan. The service may be unlimited, but the selection is limited. Limited to movies from Warner Brothers and the Epic's Pay TV channel. For $8 a month, subscribers will have access to streaming video and four nights of DVD rentals. Make that $9 a month if you want Blu-ray discs. The lowest-priced plan from Netflix that offers both streaming and DVDs is $16 a month. Want to sign up for the new plan from Redbox? Uh, Hold on, not, not so fast. Taking a play from Google's strategy book, the service is by invitation only until sometime next year. Initially, only the Warner Brothers movies will be included in the deal, not the Epic's TV programs. And if you think it might include Redbox video game disc rentals, you're going to be disappointed. Clearly, this is a service for people who are more interested in movies, specifically those by Warner, than in anything else. They're going to call it Redbox Instant by Verizon. The library has about 5,500 titles. It's a lot smaller than what's in the Netflix collection, 60,000 titles available for streaming. But that's a similar strategy to the Redbox kiosks, which involve the top 200 recent movies from major studios. DVDs rent for $1.20 per night, Blu-ray discs for $1.50. The Netflix DVD library, they've got about 100,000 titles. The desktop system upgrade, new hardware, and Windows 8 that I wrote about earlier this month included a solid-state hard drive that has dramatically improved the startup time for the computer, but it's also caused a bit of consternation when it suddenly disappeared. When I say disappeared, I mean the computer would no longer boot, and the disk drive didn't appear in the BIOS list of drives. This account also illustrates why I continue to recommend dealing with a local system assembler who will be interested in ensuring your satisfaction. Solid-state drives have been around for a few years, but the technology is still relatively new, and anything that's new can be subject to a variety of amusing anomalies. I sometimes need to convert DVDs to ISO images, and I sometimes need to burn ISO images to DVDs. What I found is that either of these actions can sometimes confuse the computer. When the computer is confused, the DVD optical drive continues to spin and any attempt to shut down the reading or writing application fails. Any attempt to shut down the computer also fails. So the only solution is to shut off the power to the computer. Remember the old saying, a computer's attention span is only as long as the wire that connects it to the outlet? Well, what I found though is that the solid state drive won't boot after an abrupt power-off reset. When I took a look at the BIOS settings, the drive wasn't even there, and no combination of warm or cold boots could make it appear, or so it would seem. What I found, eventually, is that the drive does reappear. If you turn the power off for several hours, it resolves the problem, but that's hardly a solution. So I talked with TCR's Marshall Thompson, who researched the problem, and found that this is a known issue, and that a firmware upgrade should fix the disappearing hard drive problem even though it won't have any effect on the root cause, the failed reading from or writing to the DVD drive. While we're still trying to sort out the problem that causes the system to fail when reading or writing an optical disk, the problem of the disappearing boot drive appears to have been resolved. As Marshall Thompson said in one of his emails to me, I have three computers with SSDs as the primary drive. I've not had problem number one, but I still consider them new technology, and that always has me on my guard. So my takeaway is this. If you want to play with new toys, it's a good idea to know somebody who will have your back, just in case. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Lynn and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.